Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the clock is ticking. The first ever default on America's debt may be days away, and President Biden rushes home to make a deal. The president's trip overseas was meant to reinforce America's role as a global leader. But back in Washington, political dysfunction threatens to trigger a possible economic crisis. Mr. Biden accused some Republicans of scheming to deliberately damage the economy in an effort to deny him a second term. Because I am president and the president's responsible for everything. Biden would take the blame. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy blamed the White House for moving backwards in budget talks. They actually want to spend more money than we spend this year. We can't do it. With those talks seemingly at an impasse, we'll turn to two congressmen trying to work across the aisle to defuse the crisis. New Jersey Democrat Josh Gottheimer and Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick. Plus, the impact of the migration crisis on America's cities. New York's Democratic Mayor Eric Adams says he's not getting any help from Washington. The national government has turned its back on New York City. We'll hear from him this morning. Plus, Miami's mayor, Republican Francis Suarez, who is weighing a 2024 presidential bid. Then, prescription drug shortages approach record levels in the U.S., causing delays of necessary medical treatments. We'll talk solutions with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And finally, a conversation with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates on American power and the cost of domestic dysfunction. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Over the weekend, frustrations boiled over as talks broke down between the White House and Republicans who were trying to hammer out a deal to raise the federal government's borrowing limit before a looming June 1st deadline. President Biden said this morning he'll speak personally with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on his flight home from the G7 summit in Japan in an effort to break the impasse. The window for action is narrowing. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen predicts the country may only have enough cash to pay another week and a half worth of bills. And if the U.S. misses a payment, they'll have to make hard choices. A default would threaten the global economy.
The last time negotiations were down to the wire like this was more than a decade ago. In 2011, then-President Obama and Vice President Biden struck a deal with Senate Republicans just two days before a default. This time, the politics are far trickier. Joining us now are two congressmen trying to find some common ground, Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick and New Jersey Democrat Josh Gottheimer. They are the co-chairman of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, which represents the moderates within each party. And gentlemen, I know a lot of people hope you can solve these problems. I want to start with you, uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick. This was supposed to be the weekend when a deal was struck so you could vote in the coming days. Are we at the point where we need to talk about buying time with just a short-term lift of the debt ceiling so we avoid default? Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having us. Uh, the president uh, and the speaker are going to speak uh, shortly, probably in about within the next hour or two, uh, when the president is returning from Japan. I think it's really important that they sit down in person. It's really hard when you have emissaries uh, acting on your behalf uh, with um, you know, the president not here uh, to actually fix this. So uh, we weren't incredibly surprised that they hit an impasse. This is going to take time. We knew it was going to take time. But you've heard both the speaker and the president still remain, remain optimistic that they're going to figure this out. I do believe that they will, uh, Margaret. Um, you know, we passed a bill in the House. Obviously, yeah. it's not something uh, that the Senate's been willing to take up, but the Senate should take up something because they need to indicate to us what they can uh, rally 60 senators around to get across the finish line because the only way we get across the finish line, uh, the president cannot take unilateral action here. The House and the Senate both have to pass their individual bills. We have mm -hmm. to go to conference and send that conference report to the president. Well, the president talked about that unilateral action, and even he said that would have legal consequences he's not confident in. But on the question of the short term, it sounds like you think there is still time for a broader deal on the budget and the debt ceiling. I do, Margaret. Okay. Um, the June 1st date was probably, according to Secretary Yellen, the earliest possible date. There's something called a non-technical default. That basically means... Uh, I'm sorry, a technical default would mean that we don't have enough cash flow to pay the interest on our debt. We do have enough cash flow to do that. We're going to start to see the state uh, tax revenues come in about the second week of June. So I think we are okay on that. We will have time. And I really do think that we should allow leeway and flexibility for the speaker and the president, uh, who both understand the gravity of this situation to work this out. I think they will. Sounds like you think there is more negotiating room here than what the Treasury Secretary says. Uh, Congressman Gottheimer, uh, Question for you, when you hear that, um, what do you believe here? Is June 1st not really a hard deadline, or do you actually think we need to have a short-term lift of the debt ceiling to avoid default? I mean, I think we have to presume June 1st is the date, if that's what the Treasury Secretary is saying. Also, regardless if we have a few more days, the bottom line is we can't continue to play chicken with the full faith and credit right. of the United States of America. Right? The risks are just too significant, as we all know, both to... Uh, to paying our debts and what that would mean with our reputation in the world. And obviously the government of China would love us to default. And then, of course, people's savings, their 401ks and the, the risk, which is clearly real, of sending us into a recession if we default. You know, that, that has to not even be an option. But as Brian said, it's going to take all of us, Democrats and Republicans, to get this done. And that's the only way I think it's going to actually right. ever pass is if Democrats and Republicans, because you're going to lose people on the far left and far right. It's going to take people like me and Brian and others like us who are willing 
to get this done. And so I'm very glad the president and the speaker are obviously connecting and, and momentarily. But we have to do this, keep talking every single day, every single hour until we get this across the finish line. Well, borrowing costs are already going up. Wall Street is already making exactly. contingency plans. So even short of default, there is risk. I think you both have to acknowledge that. Uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick, why do you think that there's time to play with here then? Well, I, I want to say I do agree with Josh. We should assume the date is, is June the 1st, but I think the math tells us that there is a little bit of wiggle room. That being said, Margaret, to your point, the, it's not just the X date we got to worry about. If you go back to 2011, uh, about nine days before the X date was when our credit uh, rating got downgraded yeah. and that caused the markets to spiral. So exactly. it's not just the X date, it's the, it's the risk of the downgrade that we got to worry about, which is why it's incredibly time sensitive. There's no question about it. Uh, the conversations can't come soon enough. I do think it's very, very important, though, Margaret, because I do believe that the president and the speaker legitimately respect each other. I believe they legitimately do want to come to a conclusion here. And mm -hmm. I think it's important that they physically be in the same room together to make that happen. And I'm glad the president's uh, coming back home. Uh, Congressman uh, Gottheimer, President Biden said he cannot guarantee that some extreme Republicans won't force a default by doing something outrageous. Um, there's, it's not clear what he was talking about there, but there was some reporting in Politico that there were Democrats on the Problem Solvers Caucus who were privately discussing ways to help protect Speaker McCarthy from being ousted from power by other Republicans. Is that true? And if so, how far along are those talks? I haven't been directly part of any of those, and also, but I'll say this. What but we need to happening. focus on now, and I think... I, I don't know if those are okay. happening, but uh, and I'll, I don't. I, I think if we get a deal done, we'll be able to get enough Democrats and Republicans to get this done. And I'll obviously talk to and defer to Brian on on his Republican caucus politics. But uh, but what's most important for right now is making sure we get a deal that's reasonable enough that you can get Democrats and Republicans a big enough swath to agree in the House, and of course, as Brian pointed out, in the Senate. That's the only way this happens. So it's got whatever we come up with has to be reasonable. And and let me say this just to, uh, from a big picture perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Def whether or not we default or not should not be a partisan issue, right? right? It should not be a Democrat or Republican issue. Not defaulting is a win for the country. So that's not <laughs> a give from anybody, right? That should just be table stakes of what we all agree upon to protect our country and protect the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Okay. There are longer term fiscal issues we have to deal with. And I'd say we should be dealing with those as well, which is what Brian and I have proposed. Okay. Congressman, uh, I want to ask you, though, on that. Um, one of the things the president said he was willing to do last week was some tightening on work requirements for government aid. And that angered some progressives within your, part of, uh, within your party. Um, can you support that as a moderate Democrat? Well, I think there are work requirements already. Right. I think draconian work requirements and some of the stuff that's been proposed on Medicaid, like taking away healthcare of, of hard-pressed families is not something that I believe could ever get enough Democratic votes to be able to get this across the finish line. And that's what we're talking about here, right? What can we put together enough Democrat and Republican votes, because it's going to take both in a divided government to get this across the finish line. So I think whatever we come up with has to be practical and reasonable. And the give can't be from Republicans to Democrats, oh, we're not going to 
do, we're going to let you not default on, yeah. on our debts and, and, and pay our bills, right? So that's kind of the challenge. I think there okay. are reasonable things we can do. And those are the kind of conversations that we're all having. So a, a little bit of give potentially on, on work requirements, but on uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick, the president repeatedly said this morning he doesn't just want cuts. He wants to look at tax revenues. What tax increases, uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick, uh, would Republicans consider? What has been put on the table? Well, we have to bifurcate between the discretionary and the non-discretionary. So the revenue piece uh, pertains much more to the non-discretionary, the mandatory uh, spending. That's 75% of our budget. Um, and that's where the, the, the financial solvency needs to be addressed by both revenue and expenses. Now, the, the, the matter before the speaker and the president now only deals with discretionary spending, to some extent non-defense discretionary spending. Uh, that's not where the revenues are being discussed, and that's quite frankly not where they're needed. They're needed on the mandatory side. Uh, Medicare will run out of money uh, in 2028. Social Security mm-hmm. will run out of money in 2034. So we have to, and what one of the things that Josh and I and our problem solvers have proposed, one of the things we hope are injected into these negotiations is a uh, bipartisan independent commission, much like Simpson yeah. Bowles, that requires us, and we can write this into the law, forces us to vote up or down on their findings within a year. Because until we tackle the mandatory spending mm-hmm. um, and get a, control, get a, get a handle on our, our long-term sustainability of our debt and deficit, uh, we're just playing around the margins. Congressman, we'll stay tuned to the work you can get done in the coming days. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. You bet. Thanks. We go now to New York City and its mayor, Eric Adams, a Democrat. Mr. Mayor, good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. You said that the president and the White House have failed New York City and that you don't have access to federal dollars to deal with the migrant crisis. But the administration reportedly has pledged $30 million to deal with those arrivals. Why the discrepancy? I don't think that's a discrepancy. We've spent uh, over a billion dollars. We're projected to spend uh, close to $4.3 billion, if not more. Uh, These estimate was based on a number of migrants coming to the city, and those numbers have clearly increased. We are getting, we received several days last week alone, uh, over 900 migrants on days. Uh, a week, over two weeks ago, approximately 4,200 in one week. When you look at the price tag, uh, $30 million comes nowhere near what this city is paying for a national problem. So you are getting federal help. It's just not sufficient to the needs you have. Well, we've been extremely transparent uh, what the needs are. Uh, when a city that just uh, cycled out of the uh, financial crisis of COVID is now hit with an additional uh, over a billion dollars in our budget and potentially four point over four billion dollars uh, in the out out years. Uh, that is not the price tag that is attached to what is cost to handle this national problem. You have started to bus migrants upstate within New York, and that has kicked off some legal disputes, I understand, with some of those counties. You just talked about decompression. Have you asked the governor, who is a fellow Democrat, to to help you find housing for these migrants elsewhere in the state? Uh, Yes, she has been a real partner, as well as Senator Schumer, Congressman Jeffries, and the New York delegation. Uh, They have been extremely 
helpful in trying to, number one, get the dollars coming out of Washington, D.C., but also the governor here and coordinating our efforts. We believe the entire state should participate in a decompression strategy. And it's unfortunate uh, that there have been some lawmakers in counties that are not carrying on their role of ensuring that this is a decompression strategy throughout the state. And some have, have, we have witnessed in some municipalities where they lied and stated that veterans were being forced out of uh, hotels, which was untrue and found out to be fabricated. So these types of tactics are just uh, anti-American and anti-New York City. On the question of decompression, would it be more helpful if it was the federal government directing where migrants are moved to throughout the United States instead of you as New York City's mayor trying to figure out where you can send them within your state? Yes, it would. We have 108,000 cities, villages, towns. Uh, if everyone takes a small portion of that, and if it's coordinated uh, at the border to ensure that those who are coming here uh, to this country in a lawful manner is actually uh, moved mm -hmm. throughout the entire country, it is not a burden on one city. And the numbers need to be clear. Uh, we received over 70,000 uh, migrant asylum seekers uh, in our city. 42,000 are still in our care. If yeah. this is properly handled at the border level, uh, this issue can be resolved while we finally get Congress, uh, particularly the Republican Party, to deal with a sure. comprehensive immigration policy. There has been a lot of national attention about that tragic event on the New York City subway. Um, Jordan Neely, who was homeless and struggled with mental health issues, was forcibly restrained and then choked by a subway rider named Daniel Penny. He lost his life. Um, why do you think that the system you have in place to deal with homelessness and to deal with mental health failed Jordan Neely? When you do an examination, uh, just as I talked about public safety issues, and how we had to get guns that were clearly uh, saturated in our cities. Uh, so too, in October and prior to that, I talked about uh, how we must look at involuntary removal of those who are cannot take care of their basic needs and are in danger to themselves. You know, it breaks my heart how uh, Jordan lost his life, who happens to have the same name as my son. And our focus should be on how he died and we need to look at how he lived and ensure that the other Jordans out there receive the care they deserve. I spend many days in the subway system talking to those who are in that condition. And if we don't get help from the state government to ensure that we can use involuntary removals of those who are in danger to themselves and uh, can't take care of their basic needs, uh, we may be facing a potential problem like this again. And that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we go after those other Jordan Neelys that are there looking for care. Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We go now to Miami and it's Mayor Republican Francis Suarez. Uh, welcome back to the program. I want to ask you about what is happening with the migrant crisis in this country? Is your city receiving enough support from both the state and the federal government? Well, we haven't received any support as of yet from the federal government um, that we are aware of. We checked to see if we had gotten any help from FEMA. Uh, it turns out we have not. Um, it is a migrant crisis in our city as well. Just in the last two months, the Coast Guard has processed 408 uh, migrants in our, on our coast. Uh, we've uh, just last year in our public school system, we had uh, over 14,000 new children, 10,000 of which came from you know, four uh, countries of, of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. Um, and that's the equivalent of five new 2,000 student yeah. schools. I mean, that's a tremendous a burden uh, on our system. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of, of Mayor Adams from New York for standing up uh, and talking about how this is impacting the, the, the city of New York. I mean, he has to focus on, on crime reduction. And instead, you know, you see images of police officers helping people in the, the classic Roosevelt Hotel yeah. um, uh, find housing. And so, you know, these officers uh, uh, should be and you'd want them to be focused on on reducing crime and instead have to deal with this uh, migrant crisis, which, as you've said, uh, should be a federal issue. Uh, I want to ask you about what's happening at the state level, because Florida did just pass and your governor, Ron DeSantis, signed into law um, a, a new policy as of February that will make it a felony to knowingly and willfully transport an undocumented person, even if it's a family member. I know the Miami-Dade Police Department said they uh, are not planning on pulling over drivers. What are you going to instruct Miami Police Department to do? Well well, you know, we, we, we don't get involved in, in federal um, issues like that. You know, we pull well, over state people law. Uh, for, yeah, we pull over people for, for, for state, uh, for, for traffic infractions and things of that nature. We don't usually get involved in the federal uh, immigration gotcha. enforcement system. We never have as a city. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that we plan to in the future. Um, so that, that, uh, that doesn't really apply to the city of Miami. It's, it never has. And, uh, you know, I think they're going to use, from what I understand, the Florida Highway Patrol, which is the, um, the state-controlled police department to, to enforce that law. Um, it's also going to require businesses to verify that employees can legally work in the U.S. It's going to require hospitals to include citizenship questions on intake forms. Um, is there going to be an impact on your city? Uh, there's concerns about labor shortages, for example. Well, you know, first of all, I think it is already legal to hire an undocumented uh, worker in the United States of America. So I'm not sure if that changes much the current law or the current state of the law. Uh, in terms of uh, how it impacts the city of Miami, you know, we have a 1.8% unemployment rate, which is fantastic. Um, when you want to open up a new business, definitely we need workers. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, this entire debate and discussion screams for a national solution. And I think that's what we should be focused on yeah. as a country, um, uh, solving this problem in a way that, um, you know, e A, right-sizes legal immigration so that uh, uh, we can have uh, Americans that want to work and mm -hmm. that are working legally. Am I hearing you say that some of these state laws are just theater? Because you're saying a lot of these things don't actually practically apply. 
Yeah, I think I think some of them uh, are headline grabbers, without a doubt. Um, Is you know, that what your governor, them, governor's doing intentionally? I, I think I think I think you could argue that for sure. Uh, I think I think some of them are substantive. For example, he's sending a thousand uh, law enforcement officers to the border at the request of the governor of Texas. Um, you know, I think that that that's something that could have a, a, a positive impact in interdicting and helping, uh, you know, with people who are on the terrorist watch list and they've catched, uh, you know, people who are uh, smugglers and coyotes. Mm -hmm. So that that can be help. And, and you have to be careful with that as well, because, you know, we are on the eve of hurricane season. So, uh, you know, you have to you have to make sure that the resources that are being used uh, are resources, yeah. uh, you know, that we can deploy here in the state of Florida if we need them as well. OK, um, I want to continue our conversation on the other side of a commercial break here, because I know you are considering and you have said you might run for president. So I have a lot more questions for you. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with Miami's mayor, Francis Suarez. So, sir, when will you announce you're running for president? Well, it, it's got to be soon uh, because uh, the first debate is August 20th. Uh, I'm someone uh, who uh, needs to be better known by this country. And so I think uh, the Republican Party has said there's going to be a debate a month from August all the way through January 8th, which is the Iowa caucus. So you have to take every opportunity uh, to share your story, to share your vision, and to try to inspire the American people uh, to choose uh, what you're trying to, to offer them. So uh, I think uh, it would have to be soon uh, in order to make the debate stage. There's a couple of criteria that you have to uh, follow. One of them is, is you have to be at least 1% in the polls, which I think shouldn't be a problem. And secondly, you have to have 40,000 unique individual contributions, and that takes a little bit of time. So the, the clock is ticking. Um, it's a soul-searching process uh, with my family. Um, and every single day uh, we talk about it, my wife and I, and we're getting much, much closer to making a final decision. That sounds like the only word you're not saying is yes, but you're leaning in pretty heavily there. Um, Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway was was quoted as saying uh, you'd be among the best possible draft picks as a running mate for President Trump. Would you join a ticket with him? Look, it's flattering uh, to be in any discussion uh, for the vice presidency or the presidency. Um, you know, I was, my parents came to this country at 12 and seven from Cuba, exiled from their country of birth. Uh, I never thought in a million years that I would ever be on Face the Nation with you uh, talking about the possibility of running for president. Uh, I think that demonstrates the greatness of this country, uh, that this country provides opportunities to everyone um, who cares about the American dream. Uh, that's how I've right. grown up, uh, you know, but, I've grown up as a But you've as a also said that country, the country is so. looking for someone who is aspirational and inspirational, not divisive. Is Donald Trump a unifier? Would you stand with him on a ticket? What I've said is that I'm aspirational and inspirational and that if I do run for president, uh, people should vote for me okay. because I represent something different uh, and I can appeal to a different uh, segment of our country, which is, you know, voters under 30 that Biden won by yeah. 26 points. Uh, people in cities that I won uh, my city by 86 percent and, and was reelected okay. by 80 percent. Um, and Hispanics, uh, as, as a Hispanic yeah. uh, American, I think it's important uh, to be able to con connect with uh, a, a you know, voting demographic that's growing and that's trending more Republican. Let but, me ask you. Uh, it's, that's happening. Yeah. Let me ask you on that, though. Has, um, there was some reporting in your local papers about uh, your job and side job that you hadn't disclosed. Will you release your tax returns if you run for president? 
of course, uh, and I have to disclose uh, all the jobs that I have. It really shouldn't matter how many jobs I have. What should matter is how I do my primary job, uh, which is being the mayor of Miami. And nobody uh, criticizes that. I'm also the president of all the mayors in the United States. Uh, yeah. You know, we, our success story in Miami is very, very incredible. You know, we've lowered taxes to the lowest level in history and grown 12%, the second mm -hmm. most in recorded history. Uh, we have the, the lowest okay. per capita homicide rate since 1964. And this year, we're 40% below right. that number. Uh, you know, and and we uh, we're number one in the nation in wage growth and number one uh, in unemployment. So I don't know why my local paper is obsessed with how many jobs I do. I think they should be focused on the job of being mayor, which I think I do a great job. Okay. Of. Well, Mr. Mayor, uh, we look forward to talking to you about the job you might be seeking in the future. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. We traveled to Williamsburg, Virginia on Friday to speak with Robert Gates, the former defense secretary and CIA director, who is now the chancellor at William & Mary. We began on the question of America's leadership and how the domestic dysfunction over the debt ceiling might undermine it. I think it's a real problem. Um, it, it feeds the narrative from China in particular <clears throat> that our system doesn't work. Uh, that it's broken, it's paralyzed, it can't get things done, um, that, that their model is more stable and, and actually more effective than ours. So, so sort of the, having these uh, episodes of great crisis and then some solution at the last second uh, really feeds a notion uh, that, that the U.S political system uh, isn't working at all. What do you think the biggest threat to the United States is right now? I think it is the polarization in the country. And, and you know, we've always had polarization in America. But what's been different uh, more recently is not just uh, a measure of paralysis, as indicated by the debt uh, ceiling, but a level of meanness uh, and a lack of civility among our politicians. Our, the, the sense that somebody who disagrees with you is not just somebody you disagree with, but is an enemy, is, mm -hmm. is a bad person. This lack of civility is, is I think, something new and, and really is pretty pervasive in the Congress and it sets a pretty bad example for the rest of the country. Um, we're now over two years into the Biden administration and no cabinet member has traveled to China to date. There are some signs that there may be a bit of a thaw coming here, but the two presidents need to talk. What has to happen before they can get on the phone to each other? 
Well, I was encouraged by the, the day-long talks that the National Security Advisor had with his Chinese counterpart a week or so ago in Vienna. Uh, our ambassador, Nick Burns, is now being allowed to see some more senior officials than he's been uh, able to see in the past. But this, this lack of communication is a real problem. You know, even in the worst days of the Cold War, uh, we had the hotline uh, with, the, with the Soviets and, and, and then even in the 90s with the Russians. We had agreements on how to deal with incidents, like incidents at sea, and how to make sure they didn't escalate and get out of control. We don't have any of those kinds of communications with the Chinese today. So my highest priority, frankly, would be uh, direct communications link between our commanders in uh, Hawaii and the Chinese commanders in eastern China. But it's also important for the leaders to talk and to begin to figure out, you know, we are going to be in this contest for a long time, and let's just face that reality. Uh, recently, Beijing reportedly appointed their state security czar to start cracking down on U.S. firms that do business in China. Um, it's getting, it's getting tough. It is on tough. That front. And, and what Xi Jinping made very clear at the Party Congress a few months ago was that security was going to trump the economy Isn't that in China. incredible? Well, for him, it's all about the power, maintaining and sustaining the power of the Communist Party of China. And that's his highest priority, and he is willing to sacrifice economic growth for that. Japan's prime minister said Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow. It seems to be there's this increased reference to Taiwan or some kind of military expansion by China as, as looming, as almost inevitable. Um, do you see the potential for a head-to-head -head clash here? Or are we thinking of it in, incorrectly? Well, there's always that potential. I mean, the Chinese have, uh, have been building ships like crazy. They now have more ships in the Pacific than we do. Um, and, and they're still building. So I think we have to take it very seriously. And I think, I think the disparity in the size of our navies, even though our ships may be bigger and better technologically, at a certain point, the numbers really matter. You famously said that Joe Biden was wrong in foreign policy for 40 years. And I know you get asked about this all the time, but at this point in his presidency, how do you assess his performance? Well, first of all, on the thing that's most important right now, which is Ukraine, I think that the way that the administration used intelligence to alert the Europeans and others to what the Russians were about to do was very important. And I think the way that, that uh, the administration was able to assemble the alliance, bring the alliance together in support of Ukraine has been very impressive. My problem is that, that they have been, I think, uh, slow in approving uh, the various kinds of weapon systems going uh, to the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, there's a debate for a long time. Do we send tanks? Well, finally we sent tanks. Do we send things like the HIMARS and other kinds of uh, capabilities? And we finally did it, but only after months and months of indecision. So they've been, worrying, they've been worrying about, talking about F-16s for many, many months, and now we hear, well, we're gonna go ahead and allow 
the training on the F-16s. Well, that's a decision that could have been made six months ago. Truth is, if they had begun training pilots on F-16s six months ago, then those pilots would be able to get into those airplanes this spring. I understand the need to avoid a direct confrontation with the Russians, but I think we learned pretty early on that as long as we weren't providing things that could attack Russia proper, that Putin was not going to retaliate. Um, A year ago when we spoke, you told me the one glimmer of hope you saw was that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin had united Democrats and Republicans in Washington. Um, There was strong consensus. Do you actually think that's holding? I do. I think that, um, in fact, there's kind of a competition on the Hill to see who can be tougher on China. And, And it makes a more nuanced policy by the administration more difficult because anything that the administration does to try and put a floor on this relationship gets criticized on the Hill as conceding something Mm -hmm. uh, to the Chinese. But I think by and large, there is very broad bipartisan support for uh, what the U.S. is doing for Ukrainians, and I think it's uh, also uh, in terms of China. Yet there are some loud voices raising concerns about U.S. military readiness in terms of drawing down, in particular, U.S. stockpiles to quickly provide arms to Ukraine or to Taiwan, and the connection to this concept that that weakens the United States. Um, Donald Trump said last week, we're giving away so much equipment, we don't have ammunition for ourselves right now, we're giving away too much. The kinds of equipment we're giving the Ukrainians for this ground war against Russia are not necessarily the kinds of weapons we would rely on if we ended up in a confrontation, for example, with China. Uh, I think there also is a realization that we have let our uh, production capabilities wither uh, since the end of the Cold War, and finally people are getting behind the notion we're going to have to make some long-term investments there. I think there is an interesting conversation, though, about America's role in the world. And we're seeing some of the Republican candidates in particular take some pretty different positions on this. Do you think where a candidate stands on this issue of Russia and Ukraine really should matter to people at home? Like, what does it say about the candidates? Well, I think it should matter. I think it's very important where a a candidate stands on issues related to core national security interests. Because you believe Ukraine is core to U.S. national security interests. Absolutely, because we have these NATO obligations. If if Vladimir Putin wins in Ukraine, there's no doubt in my mind that Moldova is next, Mm -hmm. that Belarus will be incorporated into the original Russian empire, which is what Putin's trying to recreate, and it creates great danger to the Baltic states and to Poland, where we have treaty alliances that would require American forces uh, to confront the Russians. So I think think this is important. And there are differences of view, uh, and frankly, there are some differences of view on these issues in the Democratic Party as well. Uh, The Director of National Intelligence of Real Haynes testified that the U.S. assessment is that Vladimir Putin is, quote, very unlikely to use a tactical nuclear weapon. But the bravado continues. Um, Do you still have concern that this could escalate? Or are we entering this sort of slow, grinding war of attrition? 
Well, I think that the chances of Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon are not zero, but they're very, very low. And the potential for NATO's retaliation, NATO wouldn't retaliate with a tactical nuclear weapon, but it would engage Russia much more directly, I think, if there were the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. He also has his partner without limits, Xi Jinping, twice publicly telling him not to use tactical nuclear weapons. So mm-hmm. there's just, there's no, there's no money in it for Putin. I think that the risk of, of, uh, of a significant escalation on the part of the Russians is pretty limited at this point. But not necessarily at a point where we're tipping towards negotiation. I personally think that negotiations are pretty far in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this fight will continue in particular, I mean, either way. If the counteroffensive is really successful, or if it's not, the fighting will continue and until um, one side or the other is exhausted. And, and, and Putin's bet is that he can outlast the Ukrainians, outlast the Europeans, and outlast us. And Xi Jinping is watching this very carefully. So this is another reason, I think, for us to stay the course in supporting, in supporting the Ukrainians. I wanna ask you a little bit about something you said last year uh, when I was asking you about the state of the country. You said it would concern you if President Trump ran for office again. He is currently the front runner for the Republican nomination. What's your level of concern now? Well, I'm concerned because, uh, among other things, because he, is, he has been very clear that he wants to um, dramatically change, if not dismantle, some major institutions uh, in the American government. And, you know, my attitude for a long time has been many of the institutions in our government need dramatic reform. Mm -hmm. But those institutions are critical to the preservation of our democracy, preservation of our economic well-being, and frankly, uh, our freedom. What does this next two-year period look like for us? Well, the, the interesting thing to me is the, is the polls that suggest that significant majorities of the American people across the board would rather have two very different candidates for president mm-hmm. than the choice they're likely to be given. Is there any glimmer of hope there that you see on the horizon or new talent? I think there are several caucuses in the House in particular that are looking for ways to have more uh, pragmatic problem solving in Congress, to have more bipartisanship. I think it's got to start. We can't start solving some of these big problems until we have some restoration of civility and where people actually respect each other. Well, thank you for the civil conversation today, (laughs) Mr. Secretary. Always my pleasure. Thank you. You can watch the full interview with Robert Gates on our website, facethenation.com, and on our YouTube channel. We'll be back in a moment. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. 
More than 130 medications are in shortage in the United States, including key cancer treatments, according to the Food and Drug Administration. Joining us now to discuss it is former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is also a board member at Pfizer. Doctor, it's good to have you back. Um, I wanted to have you explain this because the American Cancer Society warned this week it's a serious and life-threatening issue for cancer patients. How bad is this shortage and what's causing it? Look, it's bad. This is a long-standing problem. There's about 300 drugs in shortage right now, active shortages. And so that's a high level. It's the highest it's been since 2014. But this has been a long-standing challenge. I dealt with it when I was at FDA going back to around 2003. That's how old this problem is. And this, the issue is that this mostly affects sterile injectable drugs. That doesn't mean that small molecule pill form drugs aren't in shortage, but the majority of these shortages are around the sterile injectable drugs. Um, the re reimbursement for these drugs under government programs has been driven down very low, something above the marginal cost of manufacturing the drugs. And that's fine when it comes to a pill form drug mm -hmm. where there's not a lot that can go wrong. But when it comes to an injectable drug, you need to leave a margin in so people can reinvest in manufacturing facilities, make sure they're high quality. They haven't done that and things go wrong and it results in shortages. Well, I know the White House is looking at this issue. Um, something like 80 percent of manufacturing facilities are located outside the U.S. How do you ramp up domestic production? Yeah, look, we've paid a high price for the low costs we enjoy. If you want to get manufacturing back into the U.S., you want companies to have a healthy margin that they can reinvest in their manufacturing facilities to make sure that they're modern. You need to pay them to do that. And as mm -hmm. long as we drive down the reimbursement for these generic drugs, they're not going to have the money to reinvest in doing that. The White House is talking about more regulation. The generic manufacturers are calling for direct subsidies. I think we really need to create a market for high-quality manufacturing so you can allow generic manufacturers to make certain claims about the reliability and the quality of the manufacturing. And then for generic manufacturers that can make those claims through maybe some third-party certification, you pay them for that. You pay them for the fact that they have reliable manufacturing that might be domestic, that might be more modern, so it's going to be more reliable and less prone to shortages. Well, the federal government um, is capping the cost of certain drugs because of high costs to uh, consumers. Um, is that going to add to this issue? Well, look, the, the features under the Inflation Reduction Act will exacerbate this problem because it will prevent these generic manufacturers from being able to take price increases. For example, if they enter a market for the first time or they spend a lot of money upgrading a facility to be compliant with state-of-the-art regulations, they're not going to be able to take a price increase to recoup some of those costs. So it's going to come out of their own pocket. 50% of generic drugs right now in a generic portfolio lose money. So a generic manufacturer loses money on half of their drugs that they market. That's not a sustainable business model. I think the administration under the IRA should carve out these old, sterile, injectable drugs entirely. They didn't do that in the legislation. So it is going to exacerbate these problems. Can they do that? Can the FDA do that? Who can do that? Well, the FDA, it's going to take Congress. They did create provisions in the IRA to try to carve out some of these drugs, but the way they structured it, a lot of these sterile injectable drugs are still going to get caught in these price caps. And so it would take an act of Congress right now to modify the IRA to do that. Uh, I think people are looking at it. I think they recognize that there are structural features in this market that make this a recurring problem. This isn't a new problem. It's gotten worse over time. Mm -hmm. It's going to take Congress stepping in to do something to change the way these drugs are paid for.
and that brings us back to a problem we talk about weekly in terms of um, getting things passed right now. Uh, I want to ask you about COVID because I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, acknowledge the end of the federal health emergency on May 11th. What do you think the practical impact will be on people at home? Well, I think the end of the public health emergency, the practical impact is not going to be that significant to the average consumer. The administration took steps to extend certain things like telehealth, things that consumers were benefiting from. There is going to be an impact on Medicaid eligibility. You're going to see some people lose their Medicaid coverage and some people not get automatically re-enrolled and they won't know how to re-enroll into that program. So there is going to be an increase in the uninsured as people get kicked off of the Medicaid rolls. Right now, cases are down to very low levels. They're probably going to pick up going into the fall. Um, but their hospitalizations, there were 9,000 hospitalizations last week. That's a historical low through the pandemic. Um, excess deaths are back to the historical baseline. So things have improved dramatically. I do think cases are going to mm -hmm. pick up as new variants start to emerge. But this will become a more manageable threat, hopefully. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you always for your time. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brandon. Today's guests were two key congressmen from the Problem Solvers Caucus, Republican Brian Fitzpatrick and Democrat Josh Gottheimer. New York's Democratic Mayor Eric Adams, Miami's Republican Mayor Francis Suarez, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.